Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My name is Sharice Lakeside, Senior Spec Writer for RDH Building Science and your host for this podcast. My guest today is none other than James Scott Brew. I added this, he doesn't know this. AIA, FCSI fellow fellow, CCS, CPHC, lead AP, and well AP. And I'm guessing there's probably other ones out there that wouldn't fit on LinkedIn. He is the senior sustainability and wellness architect with Nikin Sakai chatting with me all the way from Tokyo, Japan. I, it's 6 p.m. here. I think it's something like 9 a.m. there the next day. He's, he's in tomorrow. James is also a percussionist, which I think is super cool. I dated two, two drummers when I was younger, now that I think about it. And has performed in dozens of bands since he was 14 years old. In addition, James is also a Twitter buddy of mine. James specializes in helping to create healthy, sustainable, and energy-efficient buildings that achieve greater resiliency for clients, campuses, and cities. He has over 35 years of design, management, and construction experience and has completed hundreds of projects in historic preservation, healthy, high-performance, lead-well certified, deep breath, and passive house super-efficient buildings of many types and sizes. His work extends from the U.S. to Asia, Australia, the Middle East, and Europe. Before joining Nikon, James co-led the building's practice at Rocky Mountain Institute. He was a principal owner, vice president, and pioneer of sustainable design, helping to grow his own Minnesota-based architecture and engineering firm, 
from a small firm to nearly 200 people on seven client-focused teams. The project we're going to chat about today is the Duluth Omnimax Theater. The technical requirements for projection, sound isolation from external noise, vibration sensitivity, and audio quality for an IMAX dome theater are intense. If that's not enough, try building it on the shores of the world's largest lake, known for its powerful hurricane-force winds and rainstorms. Did I mention the building form is the shape of the bow of a giant Great Lakes ship, making no two pieces of structural steel parallel? Let's, let's talk about this Omnimax Theater. I'll be perfectly honest. I've only been in an Omnimax Theater, I think, twice in my life, and one of the times made me sick. Oh, really? um, something about <laughs> those, those virtual reality rides at Disneyland make me sick too. So yeah, I haven't yeah, been yeah. in one since, <laughs> um, but they, but they are super cool. So tell me about this project when you got started. Well, I know that this project was completed in 96. So I'm guessing we were hired probably in around 93, but, but just an IMAX dome theater is different than an IMAX theater, right? It doesn't have a flat screen for those uh, who are familiar with the dome theater. The Dome Theater has, if you can visualize, curved seating at a very steep incline. So stairs are also kind of an interesting challenge. And then if you imagine a gigantic ping pong ball that you saw in half and you place half of that white dome over the audience at an angle and then puncture it with about a million tiny pinholes um, that you cannot hardly see when you're inside the theater, you can only see with a bright light behind the dome. This is uh, what a dome theater looks like. And so when the audience is seated in these special chairs that you can lean all the way back in, you can see from a 360 degree view everywhere, the film in perfect clarity because it's filmed with a very special lens, a 70 millimeter film. So we knew going in, if we get this project um, and we teamed with a firm that had actually done an IMAX dome theater in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. So we felt pretty pretty good, and being a full-service firm, we felt pretty good about getting it. Um, we knew there'd be a lot of new technical challenges that we wouldn't be familiar with, but we knew we'd have a good partner in not only our associate architect, but also in the client. The client licensed the IMAX technology, which comes with consultants. But you can imagine sound is a big issue inside the theater design where we might, as architects, you know, be used to hiring someone to help us with acoustical analysis in a building, you know, whether it's a performance hall or, or some kind of theater. But this project is unique in that the audio consultants were hired before design began. And they were on site, standing on the site where the building would be built before we put one single line on paper. I thought, what are these guys doing we haven't even designed anything for them to respond to audio engineers and uh, acoustical specialists. Well, the people that were involved early, what they do is they measure any of the sounds they can hear on site and they're IMAX specialists who've, and I think there's only about a dozen IMAX dome theaters in North America. This guy who did the acoustical analysis on site before design said, this was the loudest site he'd ever taken readings on. And we said, really, why? Not realizing, you know, you could throw a rock and hit the ships from this building. The horns that blow for the aerial lift bridge to rise so the ships can come under is nearly every hour. 
Meanwhile, there's a train track right nearby for a passenger train, North Shore Scenic Train Ride, and that train is blowing its whistle as it goes by in vibration. Set the stage for what would then become a technical challenge to design acoustically and insulate enough both inside and outside the building to basically stop all sound from outdoors getting inside. What were some of the design challenges, especially since you had never done a, a facility like this before? Well, you noted in the introduction, Sharice, the uh, building is in the shape of the bow of a ship. And it's actually colored like the ship museum that is nearby. It looks like the iron, rusted iron ore. But this building form, everything's curved uh, from a skywalk connecting it um, is sort of stepped to the Duluth, downtown Duluth uh, skywalk system. But the uh, structural engineers really had a challenge because there really are no two pieces of steel, as I said, that are actually parallel to each other, except for, you know, the small struts and things that you use to fasten materials to. But the, the, the main structure uh, was really complex. In my experience, probably in everybody's experience, where you really find out you might have missed the mark in a part of your design that's going to happen during construction, or when you really find out whether you really have a great contractor or not. It, and it happens all the time. We design things that can't really actually be built that way. And so it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing. It just has to change. So how, how did things go during construction? Any good stories? I want some dirt. Give me some dirt. Well, okay, I wasn't going to say this, but I will now that you asked for dirt. Um, <laughs> at this, and this contractor will go unnamed at this time because I had, in my experience, sort of one of the worst experiences on this project, actually, with a contractor and personnel specifically. And flash forward 10 years later, and I had one of my best experiences of my life with the exact same contractor, different people. So if there's a message or a lesson in that, it's just that all projects come down to the people that we put at the front lines to represent us. And it doesn't mean that a company is bad or, or good based on, you know, some individuals necessarily. So yeah, there's, <laughs> there was some pretty close altercations on the job site where I was nearly punched out by a, um, the project manager or whatever you call it, the office level. Um, was very intense, uh, kind of tightly wound guy who was uh, admittedly under a lot of pressure. And you can imagine these kind of projects, uh, theaters and other performing arts, where there's a timeline, a deadline that absolutely has to be met in order to basically, in this case, they had rented the film. And those films are extremely expensive to lease, right. to show and to advertise for it. So the deadline was unmovable. And here he is writing out subs that uh, maybe were some beyond their capacity for a complex structure like this. And so there was tensions were high. <laughs> and I maybe didn't uh, fully appreciate that. But one thing I really appreciated in this project experience was this contractor was big on the partnering, project partnering or teaming partnering. But I learned a lot at that partnering session. I, don't, I would say at the end of the day, it, wasn't, it didn't meet its goal in terms of one of the goals, as you may well know, with partnering is to get to know each other a little bit, which we did. And that's the effective side of this workshop. The other side was to develop a conflict resolution strategy right. that was 
proved useless while we were sitting in nearly a courtroom with attorneys around the table on each side, 28 people, you know, in a room trying to resolve uh, building leaks. But the best thing about that partnering experience, that lesson I took away for the rest of my career, was one of the little exercises during, I think, a two-day workshop was to break up the tables. There were three big tables, round tables in this room, and basically had an owner team, a contractor team, and a design team. And to move the teams back into their own groups and sit at your table and develop a list of what you think the top three goals for this project are for the other two parties. And so I use this on other projects because it was so eye-opening for me. Uh, for example, I think we in a design team group said that the contractor's number one goal is to make money or something like that. I can't remember. But that <laughs> Everybody be, says that. <laughs> yeah, we. I think we did. And make profit. I think we wrote profit. And the owner and the contractor team thought the number one goal of us was to win awards, which I can say never came up once in my career at my firm in Minnesota that I can recall, like during a design phase, oh, we won't win an award if we don't do it this way. What? Not at all. So everybody was wrong. It was such an eye-opening exercise that I think every firm and every project should at least have just that exercise. You know, it's funny that you say that because the the last architecture firm that I worked for before I moved to RDH, LSW Architects, shout out to them, awesome people. They did the most unique thing I've ever ever seen in my career at an architecture firm. And they do not completely, but almost exclusively schools. And they would have this with our clients, with the school district clients, they would do a similar thing. It's like a two-day workshop. And they're going to get mad at me for saying this. Um, they would give everybody this personality type test. It's not a personality test. It's more about how do you work? You know, some people like you can just come at them head on. Other people you have to, yeah. and they'd give everybody, the contractors, nice. owners, architects, everybody who was going to be on this project team. And then they would sit down for two days and go through all of this stuff and talk through all these scenarios, very similar kind of thing. Hmm. But they are wildly successful in okay. how well their project teams work together because they start off on that foot. I think that is so great. That is fantastic. More of that would be good because I think that's where the wheels come off of some of these challenges we meet on construction. Well, at least, again, I'm a little bit out of the loop of what's happening in America being in Japan now for seven years, but I feel like and I don't know if this is true. It's not maybe fair to say that America is a litigious society, but from the Japanese perspective, you got to admit it definitely looks extremely litigious. Um, in fact, if you look at well, a lot of people say, what? Niken Seke, I never heard of him before. How can you possibly be at the second largest architecture firm in the world, James? And say, well, you haven't heard of him because we don't work in North America. I don't know the story behind why we don't, but we work everywhere in the world. But North America ain't one of those places we're interested in. I think it's because of the litigious nature of the country. I, I could be wrong. I, no, I, I, I think that that's probably a pretty fair assessment. I don't know how many times, even a week, I have a conversation about risk hmm. for that very reason. It would be nice to see that change. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I, and, and again, yeah, I don't know all the details of sort of what's going on in that world today, but. I think your last firm, LSW, was it? They, they, 
they sound like they really got their handle on sort of this relationship management, which is just as important as construction details and constructability and quality, but not to, to steer us too far off of the path of the project, but just somehow, for some reason, it might've been related to CSI. I found myself at a national convention somewhere on the East Coast of the United States and giving a tour of a building under construction to some Japanese people who, at the time, I had not nearly enough Japanese language skills to have a clue what they were talking about, but they were laughing. And later, I knew everybody would go out to dinner and have drinks and so forth and maybe loosen up a little bit. I asked one of the interpreter guys, what were they laughing about on the construction site? Can you you find out or do you know? And he said, kind of reluctantly, they were laughing at the quality of the construction. Oh, wow. I didn't know what that meant until I moved here. But I know that things aren't always straight in buildings and homes in America. And we make up for it with caulk gun and with sometimes uh, plaster. You know, we sort of plaster up to make something flush or, or make it look good. And that just doesn't happen here. So that was a really interesting lesson for me that it didn't fully resonate until I moved here and started looking at things that are just so precise and so perfect. And if it isn't right, people take it out and change it. And they don't need to be told to do it. I think the punch list here would be surprisingly short is my, my perception. I, I am right. involved in developing one, but. Sounds nice. That's for sure. <laughs> so let's talk about products um, that you used on this building. Did you have to use anything unique to achieve this design or, or what worked, what didn't? <laughs> yeah. So I think about that now and I, my first comes to mind is a, uh, concrete, concrete masonry units, you know, CMUs. And uh, there was an EFIS system on this building, which is pretty standard, I guess, or, or at least normal at the time. And everything's covered, right? And, and again, somehow adjusted for isolation from vibration or from sound. And so it probably looks and feels and seems like pretty basic. I remember, though, the one thing that sticks in my mind is, I don't know if you know rental radiation, but it was the first time I'd ever seen this European northern european radiation on a project and i think our mechanical engineers chose it because um it was quite flexible in the way it could be formed around uh shapes and it, it sort of takes on this segmented i think form in the upper lobby area of the building which again is mostly rounded so that that sticks in my mind but nothing else like ultra special comes to my mind except for the equipment and that is all sold the the audio equipment the sound system which is just the most unbelievable sound system you've ever seen or heard in your entire life and getting to attend to the um, commissioning of that sound system where they played the dark side of the moon by pink floyd the entire (laughs) album unbelievable You know, I grew up as a musician in Minnesota, and it really, I guess, surprised me to walk onto a job site where audio engineers were using Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon as the the album of choice. So I don't want to tell you too much about my uh, background uh, use of uh, alternative chemicals, Um, (laughs) but um, hearing that album, hearing that album in that environment was really just super powerful for me. And and I actually took a seat and just sat back in the chair 
closed my eyes and enjoyed the the show, if you will, without a movie showing. But um, yeah, it was just a really amazing experience to to hear that album being played uh, in one of your projects for commissioning purposes. <laughs> But that equipment all is special ordered through IMAX, so you don't, we didn't have to specify the complex sound system. We certainly had to detail and show how all of that equipment was installed. And for example, speakers are hanging on these chains, which are sound isolated on springs from the structure overhead behind the dome that no one can see, hanging a very specific distance from the dome. And each speaker, of course, has a very special purpose in terms of uh, its audio quality. The sound, it, it doesn't bounce around like we would think to, in terms of uh, reverberation. There's absolutely zero reverberation in a dome like this. It's, it's actually designed to not have any reflection. It's all absorption. But the speakers are wired in such a way, I, I, if you've been to a, even an IMAX theater probably, and not just an IMAX dome theater, um, when a whale jumps out of the water on the far left side of the screen and you hear those sounds of the water just ejecting from the ocean and then splashes down on the far right side of the screen, that sound moves with the whale across the entire screen and you feel it. It feels so real. So it might make some people a little bit woozy, but, uh, but I found it just absolutely fantastic while they tuned each of those speakers to the dark side of the moon. It was just a, a, a very powerful experience and I think would have been better in the right condition. I would not have moved the whole th The album would have to be done playing before I got up and left. Yeah, I don't remember leaving. <laughs> that sounds like they have to get up inside that dome if they need to adjust it. What was your access like up there? It fully accessible. You go backstage, if you will. Um, there's sort of an entire corridor around the dome on the outside of the theater after sound insulated walls that are probably about 18 to 24 inches thick, as I recall. And then back there, there's catwalks and uh, entire accessible structure all the way around the dome and above and over it and through it. And you only get to start to feel what this is going to be like when the supporting structure for the dome is sort of put in place. The dome itself is built from a multitude of panels. It's like a thin sheet metal panel that's special coated as a screen and again, perforated. And uh, it really didn't strike me kind of the, even the design when you look at it on paper. I think it, this, this would have been a great project for BIM had it been fully engaged and utilized at that time. Because I think most of us, without a model, couldn't really visualize what this would look and feel like until it was in place. So I seem to remember, tell me if I got it wrong from one of our previous emails, that you had a story about some curtain wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think every architect, and, and I, I used to make up jokes about, um, and you already heard one, I think, here today about, I say things like design, bid, build, leak, lawsuit. <laughs> and how that paradigm is doesn't exist here. But uh, the phone rang, as it often does on a project uh, some months after occupancy. I know we had a black tie affair in the lobby of this Omnimax theater with the design team, the construction team, and the owner team, just literally weeks after that event. 
uh, the phone rang and I, I was always in the office early and I think it was around 7 a.m. And the owner representative was calling to say, James, you got to get down here. And this project site is walking distance from our downtown Duluth office. But before I hung up the phone, I said, can you just tell me what happened? And he said, I'll just say this. We have a lake in the lobby. And I said, how bad? And he said, they named it after the guy who discovered it, Jim Karasik. It's now called Lake Karasik. Get down here. <laughs> and so I raced down there. And uh, of course, we didn't know at the time what where the leak was from exactly. Is it a roof wall connection? You know, what is it exactly? It didn't take a lot of time to sort of figure out based on where the water was that it probably came through the curtain wall system and ran down through the extrusions and oozed out onto the floor. And it was a big lake. And after recognizing what might be leaking, of course, the logical next step is get the contractor who brings his subcontractor, uh, the glazing contractors on, on site. And we scratch our heads <laughs> in the normal way. We scratch our heads and uh, try to figure out what might be wrong and not getting a lot of answers quickly. The client, their logical next step is just get the attorneys engaged uh, to drive action. Right. <laughs> and uh, it did. It did drive action. Meanwhile, this is a really great part about CSI and where the power of the national network that really came home to me because I had attended a number of national conventions, met people from various uh, suppliers, manufacturers, designers. I don't know if you know the name uh, from Minneapolis, St. Paul, Alana Sunnis Griffith. Oh, yes. I it, She's actually a Facebook. I don't let everybody into my Facebook. She's a Facebook friend. I love Alana. Oh, yes. She's wonderful. And she had been president of CSI National. And Alana, being a wonderful, outgoing, exuberant person she is, she is everybody knew her business, um, Empire House and Empire House Glass and Glazing Systems. And I immediately called her and said, you know, I don't know what to do. I said, I, I know we have a curtain wall problem. I certainly don't know what it is. I'm looking at the details and the parts and pieces. And, and I, it, you know, if it's a manufacturing situation, installation, or maybe it's design, maybe we use the wrong product in the wrong way, uh, you know, in the wrong environment on the shores of Lake Superior. And I said, who do I call? I mean, I, do you guys do this kind of stuff? Can you come up here and we can pay you to help us analyze it? And she said, James, why don't you just call? Roy Colburn at Superior Glass in, in Superior, Wisconsin, just over the bridge. He's he's an expert at curtain walls. And Roy, such a dear, sweet, kind man he was, came over, brought one of his big bucket trucks, and I remember riding in the bucket and him pulling apart assemblies and teaching me about primary seals and secondary seals and what they mean, and really more than I probably need to know, even as the architect overseeing construction I think it's 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 a lot of detail, but he and we created full-size, actually maybe larger than life, details of the assembly in 3D on a obviously a 2D CAD system in order to articulate to the client sort of what went wrong. And it turns out that the subcontractor had retained basically some college kids. <laughs> Uh -oh. to come onto the job site and do some of the assembly of these components. There were parts and pieces behind the aesthetic caps that cover the outside of the curtain wall that were not only backwards, that that could be a problem, but they had substituted for 
what would be the primary seal, some foil tape. <laughs> Just go figure that. Foil tape, this will be fast and it'll keep water out if it isn't punctured, in which it was frequently punctured, we determined by taking pieces apart in the field. So, so this is where I learned what a Perringer agreement is. And a Perringer agreement, uh, for those not familiar, <laughs> it's basically where you convince the owner to drop the lawsuit against you and your design team in exchange for working for them, often in this case too, for free, against the general contractor and the subcontractor. That's what a parent's agreement is, sort of just a swap. It's like a, just a consolidation of the lawsuit to focus on the guilty, not the innocent. Right. <laughs> and so that was just an incredible experience that I think really shaped my maybe feeling going forward with both what I need to know and do with curtain walls. And, and I think the other big lesson there is um, I'm quite certain we did some really basic water testing but I don't think it was enough. I mean, now what I know, I've, I've since taught classes on building enclosure commissioning for AIA University online, and I, I know we didn't do enough pressurized testing compared to what you know, should be done. So I think specifying better would have helped. Not just us. Again, this would have helped the contractor. And if I was in the business of glass and glazing, I'd probably know this. And maybe they should have or could have known that we should do some testing of our own, and here's why. It's going to save us time, money, and attorney's fees if we find a problem before it's turned over to the client. Uh, yeah, working for an enclosure consultant now, I, I write so many testing testing requirements for everything now so that we can you know, avoid, obviously, getting into that position, and we've learned so much. So if, if you had to do another IMAX theater today, what is the single biggest thing you would do differently than you did the first time you did one? I think building envelope commissioning, you know, I would really engage in that and knowing what I know now. Yeah. It just, that would have been huge because I didn't tell you the story of, and maybe it's all right for another time, but the uh, EFIS system on that building also failed much later. At that time, we were we were investigating some other EFIS failures, and together with that project and the other failures that we we didn't design but we were investigating, we helped drive the EFIS industry towards providing a a rain screen or a drainage plane behind the EFIS as an option. Now, not every manufacturer provides that or provided that at the time, but um, they do now because they recognize that the skin on the outside is not impervious to wind driven rain. And so, yeah, I, I think the commissioning of the envelope, something we hadn't really anticipated, especially on a building that doesn't have a really straightforward form. And it's in a location where you do get hurricane force winds and rains. And we knew that climate, obviously, we designed many, right. many, many buildings. But that shape and form in that environment on that site is unique. And so that that would be the biggest thing I would do differently. So I know that sustainability is huge for you. What innovative changes in technology or construction or whatever in our industry do you think are going to be the game changers or need to be the game changers? Well, I don't think that it's going to be a technology or, or even a multitude of, of really simple technologies that save us from the climate crisis and the path that we're on. It really 
really has to take leadership from government, big business, and civil society. So no matter where we are in the world um, and what political system or affiliation you might have, there are implications for government to improve policies. And in the built environment, I always wish for better building codes, you know, more aggressive codes that just don't seem to move fast enough. There was a period in the early 2000s where the energy codes jumped somewhat radically and improved, but then they fell back to a very, very incremental improvement. And so, for example, the, the builder lobby uh, really works hard, and, and they should because they feel that they're threatened by improved energy efficiency. And yet energy efficiency is far cheaper than any kind of technology or system that you might add. And if you don't believe me, I think Passive House is a great example to look at where you invest, 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 um, as Amory Lovins wrote in 1994, this whole idea until you tunnel through the cost barrier. And it's not really a cost barrier, but you're basically investing in the right systems and solutions that avoid costs. And because one thing we do terribly in this industry and probably others is we don't calculate the cost of doing things worse. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. We could start by changing some of our humans, in my opinion, but I won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole because I'll just get myself in trouble. <laughs> Final question of the day, and I ask everybody this, if you were the master of the universe and you got one wish, you could change one thing that would result in a better built environment for everybody, what would your one thing be? Well, since we just came off the climate crisis, I'll just say better building codes. Because if Passive House, for example, were the, the norm, that was the baseline, can you imagine of air tightness, of you know air exchange, 100% fresh air for humans? Why? Because of health and wellness. All of these pieces would sort of fall together. And maybe even on the project delivery side, you'd see uh, subcontractors and suppliers stepping up to say, okay, we've improved the R value of our product, or we've changed the um, material content of this so it doesn't off-gas toxic gases. I really think that if building codes were extremely aggressive um, and not just the bare minimum that you have to do in order to be allowed to get a permit to build it, then we'd probably see a lot of things change for the good. Seems like that would be the simplest way to drive massive change really quickly. Yeah. Well, James... Thank you so much for coming today. I think we could sit, I, I really believe we could sit here for hours and just start knocking off every topic on the planet. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, you here today. Thank you for inviting me. It's really been fun and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening, 
We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.